Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, and we're going to kind of cut it off at a very interesting point, but we'll, we'll get to the rest of the text in the sermon here. But you can follow along as I read 2 Samuel 7, uh, 1 through 4. Uh, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he, David, said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. Let's, let's pray as we uh, look into God's Word. Lord, we thank you for uh, the privilege to be here today. Thank you for the sunshine today. Uh, thank you for the privilege of worship and fellowship. Uh, Lord, we pray for some that are traveling uh, away from us this weekend. We pray your blessing upon them. Lord, we pray for some that are uh, struggling with some illnesses some that are still struggling with COVID that's going around, and we pray that uh, you would um, bring healing to them as well uh, today. Lord, thank you for the, the privilege to look into your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to what the Spirit of God would have for us today. Lord, help us to realize that he's the teacher, and so um, we will uh, be like Samuel. Help us to say, uh, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And uh, we pray that you will just um, change our hearts today as we look into your word. And we will thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> we have been looking at the life of David, and uh, we are on part 12 of David's life, and uh, probably heading in the home stretch here. Maybe four or five more uh, passages or sermons on uh, the, the life of David. But let me give you a little review background to kind of set the context for Second Samuel chapter 7 and where we're going to be uh, this morning. So remember that David was anointed king to follow King Saul uh, when he was a young man. Uh, God sent the prophet Samuel to Jesse's household and uh, anointed the youngest of Jesse's boys to be the next king. David was only about 17 years old when that happened. And so uh, he had to wait a long time before he was the next king, not as long as uh, King Charles recently had to wait. But David waited 13 years. And after Saul dies, uh, David is anointed king, but he's anointed king only over the, the tribe of Judah. The whole nation of Israel doesn't recognize him as king. David's 30 years old, and for seven years he reigns over Judah. But then finally we come to 2 Samuel chapter 5, and we read in verse 3 that the elders of Israel come to King David at Hebron, and they anoint David king over all of Israel. This is his third anointing as king. He's been anointed as a teenager. Then he was anointed as king over Judah. And now he's anointed as king over all of Israel. David is about 37 years old. And for the next 33 years, he reigns and is king over the entire nation. In fact, verse 9 and 10 of 2 Samuel 5 says, David took up residence in the fortress and he called it the city of David. This is Jerusalem. 
He built up the area around it from terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. And so David now finally is, is the king, and he's king over all of Israel. And as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is at a good place in his life. God's given him a position as king. God's given him a place, Jerusalem. It became known as the city of David. God's given him a palace to live in. And God's given him peace from all of his enemies. And David's at a good spot. And so we pick up 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. It says, After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, David said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. If you want to follow our outline this morning, this is David's dilemma. David's dilemma is that he's living in this luxurious palace, a house of cedar, and God's ark of the covenant, God's presence is dwelling in a tent. And that bothers David greatly. I'm living in luxury, but the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. And that brings us to David's desire. And and we have to read a little bit between the lines here. Verse verse 3, the prophet Nathan is with him. Um, And so Nathan replies to the king after he, he voices that he's living in luxury and the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. Nathan replies to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. And so David obviously shares his desire with with Nathan, the prophet. And his desire is, I want to build a permanent structure for the Ark of the Covenant. Previous to this, the Ark of the Covenant had been, what, in a tent, in a tabernacle, that, that portable worship center and wherever the, the tabernacle went, the, the Ark of the Covenant moved. And then uh, we realized that for the last 20 years, the Ark of the Covenant has, has been in the house of a fellow by the name of Abimelech in Kiriath-Jerim. And we saw last Sunday that David's desire was to move the Ark of the Covenant from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem, and they do that. Not without some complications if you were here last Sunday because they didn't follow God's instructions on how to move the Ark of the Covenant. They were careless. They put it on a cart and the oxen stumbled and a fellow by the name of Uzzah reaches out to steady the Ark of the Covenant and he touches it and God strikes him dead. It's a reminder of the holiness of God. So the Ark is in Jerusalem and David's desire is to build a permanent dwelling place for the ark. And Nathan, the prophet, affirms that. And he says, hey, go ahead and do it. The Lord is with you. It was William Carey, the father of modern missions, who founded the Baptist Missionary Society, famous quote, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. This is what David's doing. He he has this vision and dream in his heart to do something great for God. And I hope you have that uh, desire in your heart as well. Well, the whole chapter turns on, on verse 4. Because David has this dilemma and then he has this desire. But now God makes a declaration to David through the prophet Nathan. 
And uh, let's look at it beginning in, in verse, uh, verse 4. But that night, that very night, uh, David has just shared his desire with Nathan that day. Now it's that evening. The word of the Lord came to Nathan saying. And so God speaks a message, a declaration to, to Nathan the prophet to give to King David. And this is what God says. It's, it's interesting as we, we think about um, the life of David and what's going on here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that as you read through First and Second Samuel, there's a pattern in David's life. It's a good pattern. And that pattern is, there's a phrase that's used over and over, and it says, David inquired of the Lord. In other words, David's seeking what? God's guidance and direction in his life. Let me just give you some examples. 1 Samuel 23, verse 2, it says, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up and attack the Philistines? 1 Samuel 23, verse 4, Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 8, uh, regarding uh, another enemy of the Israelites, the Amalekites, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, in the course of time, David inquired of the Lord. 2 Samuel 5, 19, so David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up and attack the Philistines? 2 Samuel 5, 23, so David inquired of the Lord. And so throughout David's life, there's this pattern. And before he does anything and he makes the decision, he's asking God for guidance. Now, when we come to 2 Samuel 7, um, although David has this good desire in his heart, um, there's no evidence, there's no pattern here that David's like asking God, is this what you want? At least it's not recorded in the text. And so God comes to Nathan the prophet, and he speaks a declaration, and there's really two questions and five promises. So let's, let's look at it. Here's the message, go and tell my servant David, question number one, this is what the Lord says, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? Question number one, I want you to ask David, are you the one that's going to build me a house? Now the word house is all through this text, I think it's found 12 times. So that's the first question. He goes on to say in verse 6, I have not dwelled in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? Question number two, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So the first two questions, God says, this is what I want you to ask David. Are you the one to build a house? And isn't it interesting, I've never asked anybody to build me a house. And so those are the two questions, but then God gives to David five promises. And this is fascinating, uh, because in one sense, there's a little play on words here. God says, you're not going to build a house, but I'm going to build a house for you. And it's not a physical structure house, it's a legacy it's, 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 a, it's a dynasty, and, and as we'll see, these five promises that God makes to, to David. And uh, so, first of all, he begins to tell David, um, this is what I've done for you. Now then, tell my servant David, verse 8, 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. Let me remind you, David, what I did for you. You used to be a shepherd. Uh, Shepherds are not very high on the social economic scale of uh, that day. And I took you from the lowly position of being a shepherd, and I put you in the highest position as king. David, don't forget that. I took you from a shepherd to be the king. Then he goes on to say, uh, I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. So I've been with you, and I've helped you defeat all your enemies. And now he begins to say to David, now here is what I will do for you in the future. This is what I've done for you in the past. This is what I'm going to do for you in the future. Five promises. Here's the first one, verse 9. I think they're in your notes as well. I, I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. David, your name is going to be great. He's already got a city named after him. The city of Jerusalem is called the city of David. And uh, David's name was made great in Israel, and it's still great today in the Jewish people. And here we are 3,000 years later talking about who? Talking about David. So David, I'm going to make your name great. Uh, Secondly, he says, I'm going to provide a place and peace for my people. Verse 10, I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. You're going to have a place for the Israelites, your people. You're also going to experience peace. There's a third promise that he makes. Last part of verse 11. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. You wanted to build a house for me, a physical house. I'm going to establish a lineage, a house for you, a dynasty. And we'll learn a little bit about that in promise number five. Uh, Promise number four, I will raise up your offspring to build a house for me. David, you're not going to do the actual building of the the temple. And later on in Scripture, we found out why, because God said, I didn't want a a warrior, a man who shed a lot of blood, to be the one who will build the temple. David, you won't do it, but your offspring will. Your, Your son will do this. Verses 12 and 13. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's uh, the fifth promise that's repeated again in verse 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. David, this house that I'm going to build for you, this lineage... Your lineage will rule on the throne forever and ever. Your kingdom will be forever. Your throne will be forever. And how was that fulfilled? That was fulfilled and will be fulfilled because Christ is from the lineage of David. 
And we know how the rest of Scripture ends and how the book ends that uh, Christ is coming back again someday. He's going to rule and reign on planet Earth in the millennium for a thousand years. And then he's going to set up his kingdom forever. David, the, the temple someday is going to be destroyed. Your house and lineage, your kingdom, your throne will last forever. It's called the Davidic covenant. And so God makes this incredible promise to David. Your throne will last forever. And uh, Handel's Messiah, uh, when he wrote the Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus captures that, doesn't he? At the, the crescendo at the end, it says, and he will reign, what? Forever and ever and ever. That will be the fulfillment of this promise. Well, verse 17 says, Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. So Nathan the prophet tells uh, all these promises to David. And now let's see how David responds. And it's found in uh, verses 18 through 29, David's declaration to God. So God spoke to David. Now David responds. And let's look at David's response. Verse 18, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Uh, that's an interesting uh, verse, isn't it? That David hears all this news from Nathan, that God told Nathan to tell David. And how does David respond? First of all, he just it says he sits before the Lord. It's, it's the posture of humility. And David is just sitting before the Lord, but he doesn't just stay silent. David offers an incredible uh, prayer to God, and it's a prayer of, of praise, and it's a prayer of worship. David responds to all this by worshiping God, and David responds with two questions and five declarations. So let's, let's look at them in, uh, beginning in verse 18. He starts his prayer off with a question, who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me thus far, this far? David's like overwhelmed, like, you know, who am I? A, a, a lowly shepherd boy that you would take and put him on the throne of the nation of Israel, but not only that, establish his kingdom and my lineage forever and ever, and to be part of the a dynasty that's fulfilled through Christ. And so David says, who am I? He goes on to say, verse 19, as, as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. Here's question number two. What more can David say to you? David almost saying I'm speechless, but he's not speechless because he goes on to to make five declarations about the character of God and who God is. And so uh, let's, let's look at them. Uh, declaration number one. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. The uh, first declaration that he makes, and it's all through the prayer, is that, God, you are the sovereign Lord. That, that phrase, 
sovereign Lord, and it's how the NIV translates it. If you have the New King James Version, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, God, Lord God, sovereign Lord. It's the translation of the phrase Adonai Yahweh. And David uses it seven times in his prayer. The word Adonai, the, the root word mean is you are Lord and you are master. It's used 449 times in the Old Testament. So David's declaration is, his first declaration is, God, you are Lord, you are master, you are the one who is sovereign in rule, you have absolute authority. God, you are, you are sovereign, you're in control. The second declaration that, that he makes in verse 22 then, how great you are, sovereign Lord. So the first declaration is, God, you are um, the sovereign Lord, you are Adonai Yahweh, and God, you are great. You are the great sovereign Lord. We sing about that in our choruses and our hymnology, how great thou art. The chorus, how great is our God. I looked up the word great in the American Heritage Dictionary. It means remarkable or outstanding in magnitude, degree, or extent significant, important, chief, or principal, superior in quality or character, powerful, influential, grand. God, you are great, David says. He goes on to talk about it in, uh, a little later on in his prayer in verse 23. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform Great and awesome wonders by driving out our nations and their gods from before your people whom you've redeemed from Egypt. God, you're a great God, and you've demonstrated that by the miracles and wonders, the the parting of the Red Sea and the collapse of the walls of Jericho. God, you're sovereign Lord. You're the master. God, you are a great God. There is a third declaration that he makes at the end of verse 22. Look at it. There is no one like you. There is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. So David says, God, you're sovereign Lord. You're Adonai Yahweh. You're a great God. And there's only one God. And there is no God like you. The prophet Isaiah writes about that in Isaiah chapter 40 and Uh, There's a long section of Scripture here that talks about who God is, and I'll just read a a portion of it, but it's a reminder. The prophet Isaiah reminds us of who God is. Let me read a portion of this text in uh, Isaiah chapter 40. It's talking about God. Uh, God, you have measured the waters in the hollow of your hand. You have held the dust of the earth in a basket. You've weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance, Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Verse 15, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. God, you weigh the islands as though they were fine dust. Before you, all the nations are nothing They are regarded as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? Later on in in the chapter, he writes, 
He brings princes to nothing. He reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One of Israel. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these things? He who brings out the starry host one by one calls forth each one by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. God, you are a great God. You're the creator of the world. Uh, the, the rulers of this world are nothing. He puts them in power and he brings them down. Fourthly, David in his prayer reminds us that God is a promise keeper. God, you're the the ultimate promise keeper. Verse 25, And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promise so that your name will be great forever. And so David reminds God of, of the promises that he's made. And he reminds us that God's the ultimate promise keeper. Titus chapter 1, verse 2 says, God is the only one who cannot lie. That when God says something, when he makes a promise, um, then we can count on that promise. And David's reminding God of that. Lastly, notice what uh, David responds in, in this prayer. Uh, here's the, the fifth declaration that he makes. God, because you're uh, Adonai, Yahweh, because you're the ruler, uh, David uh, says to God in this prayer, I am your servant. He, he makes that phrase, uh, he uses that phrase rather, eight times in his prayer. It's found in verse, verse 20 as he starts off his prayer. Um, what more can David say to you for you know your servant? Uh, verse 21, um, he says, make it known to your servant. Verse 26, uh, the house of your servant David will be established. It's two times in verse 27, 28. Uh, twice in verse 29, eight times David says, I'm your servant. God, you're the master. There's no one like you. I am your bond servant. Yes, I'm the king. But you are the king of kings. And David acknowledges that in his prayer. David wants to build a house for God. And that house eventually gets built. But the prophet Nathan comes back to David and says, uh, it's a great idea, David, but you're not going to do it. But your son will. And God's going to establish your kingdom and your throne forever and ever. And how does David respond? David responds with worship. This morning in the last 10 or 15 minutes here, I just want to share some life lessons from 2 Samuel chapter 7 and what we can apply to our lives from uh, this, this story and this text about the desire of David's heart. So let's look at three of them uh, before we close this morning. Here's the first one, life lesson number one. We must continually inquire of God for direction, wisdom, and guidance in our life. When you look at the life of David, when David was seeking God's guidance, seeking God's direction, he did well. When David stopped doing that, he went off the rails. And so we must learn from David. We must continually seek God's guidance and wisdom and direction in our lives. And, of course, where is that found? It's primarily found in this book. 
that God's revealed himself and his character and um, his promises and his guidance through God's word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will what? Direct your paths. And so constantly uh, throughout life, daily, we need to what? Seek God for guidance and seek God for wisdom. And he's not only given us his word, but he's given us other ways to do that. He's given us uh, some godly um, counselors, and Proverbs says there's safety in a multitude of counselors. And when I, I would suggest when you're, when you're making a big, big major decision as you seek God's guidance, uh, it's, it's wise to get outside counsel from godly people. And maybe not just one, but maybe from several. And that's how God leads, and that's how God guides us. And so we need to be reminded to constantly seek God for direction, wisdom, and guidance. Number two, life lesson number two is this. When God says no or not now, it's because God's plans are always better than ours. When God says no or not now, it's always because God's plans are better than ours. David found that out, didn't he? There's an old TV show on that uh, back in the 60s when I was growing up uh, starring Robert Young. It was called Father Knows Best. And uh, there's some great truth to that scripturally because uh, God is sovereign. God is omniscient. God, God knows everything. He sees uh, the past, the present, and the future. He knows the end from the beginning. And so when God says no or not now... It's because he has something better for us. He certainly did for David. David wanted to build that temple, and God said, no, not now. But he honored David's idea. And David got to see his son fulfill that dream. David got to be a part of the plans and the architectural plans for the temple David got to be involved in gathering all the building materials for the temple. David got to promise that uh, your kingdom and your throne will be established forever. And so when God says, no, we're not now, um, we need to trust him. We need to patiently wait. Jeremiah 29, 11, it was given to the nation of Israel when they were taken captivity in Babylon for 70 years, but we can apply that promise to our lives. Even though it's not directly given to us, I think the principle is true. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. God says, trust me because I know what's best. And so um, what I like to say is sometimes our disappointments are his appointments. You know, we plan something, try something, want something, and it doesn't come to pass or not according to our timetable. It's because God's got something better. And we need to wait on the Lord and trust him. Lastly, number three, the third life lesson is this. 
God seeks and desires one thing from us. God seeks and desires one thing from us, and it's worship. That's how David responded when God said, no, not now, and then he gave him those five promises. How does David respond? He says he goes in and he sits before the Lord, and then he offers this incredible prayer God, you are great, and you are the master, and you're the sovereign, and you're the Lord. There's no one like you. David worships. There's only one time in the Scripture where it says that God seeks or desires something from us. It's found in John chapter 4 and Jesus' discussion with the woman at the well. And they got into this discussion about, well, where's the proper place to worship? The Samaritans say it's Mount Gerizim. The, the Jews say it's some other place. What's the proper place of worship? And here's how Jesus responds. A time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus was telling the woman at the well that worship is not about a location, a place. Worship is more about what the place of our heart, the location of our heart. And so God seeks and desires one thing from us. I want to tell you that when everything's going good in life, when we have our health and we get that job promotion and the bank account's looking good, it's, um, it's good to worship. It's easy to worship. The true test of worship is when things aren't going as well. When uh, maybe we get some difficult news or go through a valley And we have to be reminded that our circumstances, our situation does not impact the worth of God, that he is worthy through the peaks and the valleys of life. And so the prophet Habakkuk, in Habakkuk chapter 3, puts it this way. He's in an agrarian culture, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine. Though the olive crops fail and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Things aren't looking very good economically. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Matt Redman, a songwriter, author, uh, in his book, The Unquenchable Worshipper, puts it this way. Just as water can put out a fire, so too the pressures and the trials of this life can dampen our hearts of worship. It is so easy in a time of hardship to lose the sense of wonder and worship. We ask, why, God, would you let such things happen to us? He says, sometimes it comes down to a simple choice to fix our eyes on the circumstances or to cling to God and choose to worship him even when it hurts. The heart of God loves an unquenchable worshiper. 
though overwhelmed by many troubles, they are even more overwhelmed by the character of who God is. And so David responds with worship. David worshiped because he had received some good news from God. But let me also remind you in Scripture the story of Job. In Job chapter 1, when Job goes through those horrific circumstances of life, a little bit about like what some folks in Florida experienced a couple weeks ago that lost family members and lost all of their possessions. And here's how Job responds some of the most amazing verses in the Bible. After getting all this bad news, it says that this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. He was in mourning. Then he fell to the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. I don't know if I could say these words, but Job did after what he experienced. May the name of the Lord be And Job worshipped through some of the most horrific circumstances of life. Well, the story of David uh, continues, and uh, David got the blessing of uh, seeing uh, his son fulfill his dream. We're going to close with a song this morning, and it's not one we're going to sing. It's one we're going to uh, listen to. Um, And it's a song by Michael W. Smith entitled, Above All. And uh, I think as I read David's prayer and thought about David's prayer, where David's saying, God, you are are great and you are uh, a unique God and there is no one like you. But a song came to my mind that Michael W. Smith sings and um, it's entitled, Above All. And I think that uh, if we were to capsulize David's prayer and what he was saying and worshiping God, it would be encapsulated in this song. So it's about four minutes long, and maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you're not, but worship uh, worship with us as we listen to uh, Michael W. Smith, Above All. Rejected and alone. Love. 
you stand and we'll pray together. Lord, you know our hearts this morning, and uh, there are some here that uh, are experiencing uh, the highs of life and everything is going well, and there are others, Lord, that are experiencing some valleys. But Lord, we thank you that no matter where we are in that spectrum of life, that we can worship you. We thank you that you are above. You're above all kingdoms. You're above all kings. You're above all wonders and above all wealth. And Lord, we worship you and and give you praise this morning. Thank you that you have a plan for our life, plan to prosper us and give us hope in a future. And Lord, may we trust the plan of God as we walk each step with you. And so, Lord, we pray your blessing upon everyone here on all the family members and extended family members that are represented here. We pray your blessing on their lives. We thank you for the privilege of worship today. Thank you that you are King of kings, Lord of lords. There is no one like you. 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.